All right. Good evening. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 3? Now, this evening we find ourselves in the second major section of the book of Romans. We've entitled this section Justification, because in it Paul tells us how a person is made righteous, or, in other words, how a person is made right with God. Look, if somebody asks you how they get to heaven, this section tells you what to say to them. And basically, what you need to tell them is that only people who are as righteous as Jesus will be allowed into heaven. That no matter how moral or how religious they are, they'll never be good enough to be allowed entrance into heaven. And that's because, and this is going to floor a lot of people, not you guys, but it's going to floor a lot of people who have never heard it before. That's because heaven is only for perfect people. And when they respond, that's impossible. You can say to them, yes, by human ability, living a sinless life is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then you can share with them that God is offering Jesus' perfect righteousness to anyone who repents of their sins and receives him into their heart as their Savior, by faith, by faith. But here's the problem. There are two kinds of faith, true faith and false faith genuine faith and counterfeit faith you say well how do i know the difference well i'd like to look at that tonight as we said this whole section deals with the doctrine of justification which comes by faith alone and uh, this doctrine is at the heart and soul of the gospel of jesus christ in all new testament theology by the way and yet many christians today couldn't even define justification let alone explain it with regard to salvation one well-known Christian apologist and author tells us why the modern church is full of biblically deficient and theologically ignorant Christians. I'll read what he said. He said, and I quote, Why do we hear more about justification today? Why, when we turn on the radio and listen to Christian programs, why do we not hear a tremendous amount of discussion about this subject? It's because it's a theological concept. And we are in what must be described as an anti-theological age. Many today in the modern church feel that theology and doctrine are dry husks of a past age. They're looking for something new and exciting and relevant to their modern lives. Not recognizing that theology and doctrine are simply our knowledge of God. They are simply what the scriptures teach us about who God is and what he is about in this world, end quote. So let's look at verse 24. We've already looked at it last week, but let's use it as a springboard to get us into tonight's study. So Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's our verses for tonight, verse 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. When he says law there, he means the principle of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now, we've got a lot of scriptures tonight, and I won't have you turn to them all, but you can write down the references, okay? Let me read to you, though, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. So he just got done saying that we are justified by faith. 
not by our works, right? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not what? Receive. Now, if you did indeed receive it, not earned it, you received it as a gift. Why do you boast as if you had not received it as a gift of God's grace? Now, of course, we have to quote Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 at least once every Wednesday in Romans. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. Let me read to you verses 27 and 28 once again from the NLT. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. And of course, you know this. Let me just say it for anyone who is watching who is new. Whenever you see the word law there, think of the whole system, the whole mosaic system. Religion, legalism, human works, religious, moral, whatever, is a way to earn God's favor and earn a place in heaven. Paul says you will never get to heaven by working for it. Doesn't matter how moral you are, he dealt with that in chapters 1 and 2. Doesn't matter how moral you are or religious you are, the kind of righteousness that gets us into heaven is not something we can manufacture or work for. It's a righteousness that comes from God, he said, to start this section. It has to come from God. It's not conjured up by man. It's not, you know, it's not in us to produce that kind of righteousness. It's perfect righteousness. And only Jesus was the only man who lived an entirely perfect, righteous life. Turn to Galatians 2 as we set the stage for tonight's study. Galatians 2, let's look first of all at verse 16. Now, Romans and Galatians um, dovetail quite a bit. I mean, there's, it's, it's, Paul is saying uh, very, very similar, if not exactly the same things, um, throughout each of these letters. So Galatians 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Nobody gets to heaven. Nobody gets saved. Verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If I could earn heaven, why did Jesus have to die? Why didn't he say that when he came to the earth? All right, I've come from the Father. He wants me to tell you something. If you want to get to heaven, just work real hard. Go to church every week, light candles, and pray rosaries, and help the poor, and uh, so on and so forth. Work really hard, and you can make it. But it's going to be tough. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden under the burden of law, and take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's faith. It's grace through faith, faith in Jesus, right? Galatians 3, verse 11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Guys, it all comes down to faith. Everything Jesus did, everything God is offering us means nothing without faith. 
which is how justification is appropriated. So God tells us very clearly, not ambiguous at all, it's crystal clear, God tells us in his word that we are justified, in other words, saved by faith. But listen, faith can be counterfeited. Satan knows that. Satan knows that we're saved by faith, faith in Jesus. And he knows that most people will probably never be atheists or agnostic because God has created us with a God-shaped void in our heart. He tells us that in his word. And so Satan capitalizes on that information and realizes that most people will, are religious and will never stop being religious. And that's fine if he just pushes them down the wrong path of religion. Yes, everything comes to us by faith. It's all a gift of God. Anything that comes from God is a gift that's appropriated by faith. Satan knows this. That's why faith can be counterfeited, and that's why he has done that, right? So the question is, how can we know that our faith is genuine? How, how do we know it's true saving faith? You know, there's a lot of people who identify with Christianity. I'm sure you've run into to many of them. Uh, if you were to ask them, uh, they would tell you, I believe in Christ. I believe in Christ. But how do we know they are really saved? Oh, at this point, many would no doubt respond, you can't know. You, you can't know. You can't see into their hearts, so how can you know? Therefore, we can't say that somebody is not saved. He says, Jesus told us not to judge. Well, he said not to judge the motives of the heart, but he said we can judge actions. He called it fruit. And he tells us that you will know them by their fruit, which begs the question, what are the fruits of saving faith? Here's a little test you can use. I'm going to give you a list of things that, listen, don't prove. Don't prove saving faith. You say, well, then why are you going to give us this list? Because I want you to, you're going to be surprised what's on the list. That does not prove saving faith. Okay? In fact, I'm convinced many Christians will look at this list and go, I've always believed these things do indicate saving faith. A lot of people do. Uh, but let's go through them and see what you think. Okay? Many Christians believe these are the evidence of true saving faith. Let's go through these. I have under this heading qualities that don't prove saving faith. First of all, visible morality. Turn to Matthew 19. You know the story. Matthew 19, verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, to Jesus, Good teacher. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. We know that this is the rich young ruler, obviously. We know that. And uh, so Jesus said, you know, he said, what, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, well, keep the commandments. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Now, if you are confused by Jesus' answer, you need to go online and listen to our Matthew study because he was not teaching you get to heaven by keeping the law. There's a lot going on here that we don't see on the surface. But I want to get to this here. Uh, verse 19, honor your father and mother, and, uh, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? This was a moral man. In fact, we learn he was young, rich, uh, and the leader of a synagogue. He was a rich, young ruler, ruler of a synagogue. He was a moral man. But I want you to see, though, that all his life he had kept the commandments. At least he thought he did. 
Paul did too for, for most of his life, Saul of Tarsus, until he realized that God wasn't just talking about outward actions, but inward attitudes, and he was wiped out. He realized that the law was not given by God just to govern the outward actions of my life, also the inward attitudes of my heart. If I've hated, I've murdered. If I've lusted, I've committed adultery, and we've talked about that. But here was a moral guy. And Jesus said, look, if you really want to be sure, give away all your money and come follow me. Give it to the poor. Now, there are people that believe that was a universal command to all people wanting to be saved that they have to be poor. Poor in spirit, but not poor, not poor financially. Some of the most godly people in the Bible were wealthy. Job, Abraham, Joseph of Arimathea, and so on. Many today are very godly people who are wealthy, and they use their money to help build the kingdom. The problem with this young guy was, and Jesus knew it, Jesus has a way of putting his finger on what the problem is that is keeping us from fully following him with our heart, and it was his money. Money is not evil. It's neutral. It's the love of money that causes the problems. And so Jesus said, look, what's really hindering you from following me fully is your money's on the throne of your heart. Get rid of it. It's, it's distracting you. It's hindering you. Give it away. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. You'll have riches in heaven that you can't even imagine. But he went away sorrowful because he had great wealth and he wasn't, didn't want to give it up. I'm not sure if he ever repented. I hope he did. doesn't sound like it. But here was a guy who was unsaved and yet very moral. Number two, second thing that does not prove saving faith, biblical knowledge. There's a lot of people who know the Bible and can rattle off verses. These would include, in Jesus' day, the scribes and Pharisees. who Jesus said, search the scriptures constantly looking for eternal life. In fact, there were numerous, uh, numerous scribes in the Old Testament who had memorized the Torah verbatim. Even... Recently, I mean, I say recently, the last few years, I heard about a uh, contest in Israel uh, for who could memorize the uh, Jewish scriptures. And two young men memorized the in our entire Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh. It's their Bible. For us, it's our Old Testament. They memorized the entire Old Testament. Two guys. Now, I don't know if they were saved. It didn't sound like it. You could have a lot of head knowledge. I mean, let's... <laughs> Let's broaden it a little bit. The devil knows the Bible backward and forward. He can no doubt recite the entire Bible verbatim without missing a syllable. He's not saved. Look at Romans 2. And let's start with verse 17. Because Paul talks about the Jews who were teachers, knew the law backwards and forwards, but they weren't really living it. All right? That's a problem. You know the Word of God and you don't really live it, you're held accountable for what you know and aren't doing. But Romans 2, verse 17, indeed, and he's rebuking the Jewish people, primarily the leaders. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. They knew the law. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. You know, you're, you're so proud of yourselves. Everybody comes to you, my rabbi, my rabbi, teach me. 
You guys know know the word. You have, a, have this form of knowledge and truth in the law. Verse 23. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. Uh, you know, it's the old uh, it's the old thing where some people can really talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. They can write a lot of scriptures and, and, and come and they know the word, but they they don't really their lives don't match up to what they believe. That's what Paul's saying. But I remember years ago reading a commentary by Ray Stedman. Now Ray went to be with the Lord in ninety two. He's a very godly guy. I enjoy his commentaries. I've got some of his teaching on tape. But uh, he was saying that uh, he was in Germany at one point, and uh, he had uh, the opportunity to spend an evening with a group of German theologians, all liberal. They denied some of the basic tenets of the faith. They weren't saved. But he said they could rattle off from memory large portions of the Bible. They had memorized entire chapters and so on, and yet they weren't saved. Sometimes people who are not aware of how the cults operate get taken in because the cults will come to your door and they'll rattle off scripture. And you think, well, they have to be right because they know the Bible. No, they know about 10 or 15 verses really well. And they'll rattle them off and they make you think they know the entire Bible. So they must be right. Be careful. Number three, faithful church attendance doesn't prove saving faith. Guys, there are people who go to church faithfully but are not saved. Uh, again, I mean, I've known Roman Catholics that went to Mass every day, every day of the week, but were not born again. As somebody has said, it's a little homey, but I, I like it. As somebody has said, going into a church makes you a Christian about as much as going into a bakery makes you a bagel. Number four, outward piety. Outward piety doesn't prove you have saving faith. Turn to Matthew 23. And let's pick it up with verse 25. Where Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And you know what this is about. You had pilgrims coming every year to the three great feasts of the year. From all over the known world they would come for either uh, Passover, Pentecost, or Tabernacle. Those were the three main ones. Mostly Passover. That was the one that all the Jews living outside of the land wanted to, at least once in their life, visit Israel to observe the Passover. Well, obviously, they didn't know the land. They didn't know where the graves were. Uh, and so, as a courtesy to these uh, pilgrims, they had people that would go around whitewashing the tombs. And you could see it from a di good distance away. You knew that was a tomb and you'd steer clear. Because if you walked over a tomb, you'd be defiled. All that effort, all that money, and all that travel, you couldn't observe the Passover. You'd be defiled. So as a courtesy, they went and they whitewashed the tombs. Didn't do anything for the inside. It was still full of decay and, and, uh, and uh, stench and, and, and so on. 
And Jesus picked up on that and said, you know, you Pharisees and scribes, you like those whitewashed tombs. Outside you have this outward piety. You look so holy and righteous. But inside God sees your heart. It's full of wickedness, covetousness, defilement, and so on. When he said, clean the inside of the cup, and it will overflow and cleanse the outside also, he was talking about the new birth. That we get saved and God moves in and gives us a new heart. And that new nature, that new heart begins to overflow eventually from our inside of our heart into our daily lives. It's not the other way around. Religion tries to do the opposite. But Christianity says, look, accept Jesus into your heart. He'll come in, give you a new heart, fill you with the Holy Spirit, and it will overflow this new nature. It will overflow and you'll start bearing the fruits of the Spirit. You'll start showing people the love of God and so on and so forth. Right? Now this next one is interesting. Turn to Matthew 12. And I'm going to read verses 43 to 45. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. The key word there is empty. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter, they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. What is Jesus saying here? When I taught Matthew, I did a whole Sunday morning sermon based on these three verses. Matthew 12, I called it Reformation versus Regeneration. And here's the gist of it. What Jesus is describing, and I'm going to paraphrase, when people will say, come to church, of course, he was talking about those who listened to him but didn't go all the way to accepting him. But we'll just put it in our context. Say somebody who uh, their life is a mess, and so they figure, well, keep, nothing else has worked. Maybe I'll listen to that Christian I work with and go to church, see what that does. And so they find a good church, okay? And they start hearing the word, and they start hanging out with other Christians, and they start changing outwardly i mean some of the old habits are you know they're going to church they're they're staying away from some of the old sins the alcohol the the drugs the pornography we'll say sleeping around that kind of thing because you know when you're around people depending what kind of people they are you kind of reflect who they are all right and so if a person is going to go to church it's a good church with good, good spirit-filled christians they're going to want to kind of emulate what's going on around them. But if they don't accept, and, and so in a sense, they what is driven out is, is the old attitudes that led to the old sins. But they haven't really received Christ. They come to church, they listen to the message, they're changing outwardly, but they haven't received Jesus in their heart where he's filled them with his spirit and they're born again. A new nature. And eventually what Jesus says is, if they don't fill the void, they're going to go back to the world eventually. But this time, it's going to be much worse. Because once you know the truth, and you don't receive the truth, it opens the door to many other evil spirits coming in and taking over and defiling you. 
be careful of reformation, outward cleansing, but not bringing it all the way to regeneration, which is salvation. The danger of religious reformation, guys, would stop short of true regeneration is that it gives people a false sense that they have a relationship with God simply because they're going to church and staying away from some of the old sins, again, alcohol, drugs, pornography, whatever. Uh, but they haven't really crossed over into salvation. They don't have saving faith. J. Vernon McGee said, and I quote, In other words, reformation is no good. My friend, you can quit doing many things, but that won't make you a Christian. If everyone in the world would quit sinning right now, there wouldn't be any more Christians in the next minute or in the next day because quitting sin doesn't make Christians. Reformation is not what we need, end quote. No, we need regeneration. Saving faith, receiving Christ into our heart and giving him control. Number five, serving in ministry is not a sure sign of saving faith. A prime example of someone who can be involved in ministry for the Lord and not be saved is Judas. Judas. Turn to John 6. Some people are shocked when we say that Judas was never saved. They believe he lost his salvation. No, I don't believe that at all. Jesus tells us he was never saved. If you look at John 6, starting with verse 70, Jesus answered and said to his 12 apostles, Did I not choose you, the 12? And one of you is a what? A devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Now that wasn't wasn't talking, you know, as, as with a verb. He does, it's not that he just acts like a devil, but is saved. No, he uh, that's his that's his nature. In another place, he called him the son of perdition, the son of hell. And when he died, he said he went to his own place, the place where it was his to go to. Look at John 13. This is in the upper room the night before the cross. John 13, verse 10. And Jesus said to him, to Peter, he, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. If you study the passage, the word for bathe there means a complete bath. He's talking about somebody who's been completely washed of sins. And as they walk through the world, they get their feet defiled, as they used to in those days walk on dirt roads with open sandals. Come to a house, and uh, we're invited for a, a meal. It was customary for the owner of the house to uh, provide a, a servant to wash their feet, or he himself would wash uh, their feet. They didn't need to take a whole bath again. They just need to have their feet washed. And once you're saved, you're saved forever. But as you walk through this defiled world, you're going to get pick up some of the garbage of the world. So keep getting washed in the water of the Word, Ephesians 5.26. Come home from work and read your Bible. I mean, good heavens. Uh, you, you know how it is working these jobs in the secular world. It's defiling. Uh, come home and repro push the garbage thoughts out that you've people have put in your head all day long and fill your mind with, with the Word of God. So Judas was never saved. And yet what I want you to see is that he served Jesus in ministry. Luke 9, verse 1. 
Then he, Jesus, called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and, and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Verse 6, so they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Judas was included in that. I am totally convinced Judas, as he preached the gospel, people got saved. Uh, he was used by God to heal the sick, cast out demons. He was serving Jesus in ministry, but he was never saved. I'll just read you this one you know. You don't have to turn to it. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Here was a group of people involved in ministry, and yet they weren't saved. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. There are people, many people, who are not drawn to the kind of lifestyle and people that live it uh, that many uh, hardcore sinners, you know, they're never going to be a biker. They're never going, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not, you know, um, they, they really are drawn more to good people. And so they find their way into a church. And of course, the church full of godly people that love on them. They feel like they belong. They have, a, and they, they want to get involved. I mean, I can't tell you how many people over the years I've met that told me that they went to churches that, and they weren't, it served in ministry, and weren't saved. Just because a person is involved in ministry. And guys, that goes for national ministries. Some of these people on TV who have gigantic ministries or who had gigantic ministries before they crashed and burned when their sh true colors came out. People look at somebody on TV and go, oh, look at the stadium. It's packed. What a servant of God. Um, yeah, maybe. But uh, a lot of times they're just a good servant of themselves. Preaching pays well if you're good at it. If you're charismatic and so on, you, it, it pays well. There's never a reason to get into it. But for a lot of people, it is a reason. Love of money. Hey, how about this one? Number six, guilt over sin. Oh, surely that's a sign of a saving faith. A guy guilty over his or her sin. Come on. You know, before Martin Luther got saved, <laughs> um, he, he had joined the Augustinian order. And uh, he was in, in whatever place they had where they monks lived and worked and learned piety and so on and so forth. Well, Martin Luther, I mean, he, he was the kind of guy where he really did want to be a righteous guy. He just didn't know how to go about it. He thought he had to work for it because he was a Catholic, and that's what he was taught. But he was so guilt-wracked over his sins, he kept going to a supervisor, I don't know if he was a bishop, somebody like that, and kept confessing every day several times he would be constantly going to this supervisor, this superior, confessing his sins in the, you know, in the confessional. Until finally the guy said, look, don't come back until you actually commit a sin worthy to confess. You're driving me nuts. But that's how sensitive he was to uh, his sin. 
I mean, Judas felt so guilty he had betrayed Christ, he went out and hanged himself. One Christian author said, and I quote, mental institutions are filled with people who are racked with guilt over sin. They have just never been able to find any release, end quote. Well, how about number seven? Assurance of salvation is not really a sign of saving faith. I'm going to read to you uh, once again Matthew 7.22 out of the NLT, where Jesus said, On judgment day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. They're absolutely shocked and, and dumbfounded. They're not going to heaven. They had such assurance of their salvation. They were so convinced they were right with God. And now they're standing before Jesus and he said, I never knew you. Depart from me. Lord, you, you, are you sure you got the right guy? I mean, I was in church every week. I was serving in ministry and I was casting out demons and working miracles. Uh, I'm not so sure that's what was really going on. Apparently, this person thought, some of these guys on TV, I'm convinced, they, they think they cast out demons every day and work miracles every day. It's just, they think it. But the idea is, though, this is a person who was very, was very convinced um, that they were saved. They had total assurance of their salvation, yet they weren't. They weren't saved. Look at Romans 10. Paul applies this mentality to the Jewish people. He said in Romans 10, starting with verse 2, For I bear them witness, the Jewish people, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, not according to the truth of God. They've got a zeal for God according to Judaism, but not New Testament gospel stuff. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You know, you think that a person has zeal for God, they must be saved, right? I mean, you see a person that is zealous for God, they must be saved. Well, many times they're just very zealous for their religion because they believe it's earning them a place in heaven. And they want to get to heaven. But Paul says, look, the Jewish people, they have a zeal for God, uh, but, not, um, but not according to, to the truth, knowledge of the truth. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own system of righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Look, their righteousness, so-called, quote-unquote righteousness, was, listen, inoculative. They had just enough self-righteousness to make them immune to the real thing. And guys, that's the danger of religion as opposed to a relationship. And why being lukewarm is the most dangerous condition a person can be in. It gives them a false assurance of salvation. When you read in Revelation 3 about the church of Laodicea, and Jesus said, I wish you were either hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. You'd be surprised how many commentators believe that they were just Christians who were kind of backslidden. I don't see that at all. Because he was knocking on the door to get in. Uh, a Christian who is a true Christian but backslidden, Jesus is still in their heart. No, what's going on here is I wish you were either hot or cold. The Lord can deal with people who are flat out cold. They're not interested. They're not religious. They don't make any bones about it. But they're not under any delusion that they're saved. They're cold, but he can work with that. I wish you were hot. Well, that's an on-fire Christian. They're fine. It's that middle group, the lukewarm. Who are they? They are people that have a form of godliness but are not really saved. They're religious. 
what we're talking about. They're lukewarm. They have just enough self-righteousness that they think that they're right with God. Self-righteousness is based on their works and whatever their religion dictates as far as what good works they need to do to please God and get to heaven. They're all about that. They're lukewarm, though. They have never, just like we said, reformation that doesn't go all the way to regeneration. That's what we're talking about. These folks are, you know, they're not saved, but they have religion, and that gives them a false sense of assurance. One author said, if simply believing you're a Christian makes you a Christian, there would be no such thing as being deceived by false hopes and false teachers. If just simply believing I'm saved makes me saved, uh, there would be no false hope because the hope you have in your heart would make you a Christian. So assurance of salvation. Um, and you, you, know, you, you guys know that how many people out there really think they're saved. I mean, it doesn't have to be religious folks. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, you don't have to tell me about God. Me and the big guy are tight. <laughs> you know, they don't go to church. You know, they're not reading their Bible. But they think, for some reason, because maybe when they were a kid, they, uh, you know, they rescued a butterfly from some other kid trying to pull its wings off or something, or they didn't kick the puppy like his friend did. So I'm a good person. Me and the big guy are tight. Whenever somebody says me and the big guy, I know exactly where they're coming from. All right. Number eight, and this is a big one. Number eight, another thing that doesn't guarantee a person a saving faith and that is a past decision for christ when i say this i mean people who have walked the aisle prayed the prayer to accept jesus as their savior but there's no real fruit there's no evidence that they are really born again i mean it happened 20 years ago uh back then we'll say they went to a billy graham crusade and when billy gave the altar call they came forward they were weeping you know just weeping they were touched emotionally and prayed the prayer to receive Jesus. And they left there and never did anything with it. But they believe. I did that. I prayed that prayer. I'm a Christian now. Why? Because I prayed the prayer. I mean, you can't believe how many people, whether it was a Billy Graham or a Greg Laurie crusade or Luis, Luis Palau or maybe just a local uh, evangelist came to their church, uh, came to the area, and, uh, and they went and saw this person. And when the person gave, and, and a lot of times these, these traveling evangelists, they're very good speakers. And they have all kinds of gut-wrenching stories. Of, you know, and they move you emotionally. You know, Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, you got to understand the Puritans, they did not want emotionalism involved in their preaching. They didn't want people coming to Christ out of emotions and not a true conviction of the Holy Spirit. So they purposely were stoic when they preached. Jonathan Edwards, he didn't have very good eyesight anyways. Sinners in the hands of an angry God? He read it like this. He read it, holding it about six inches from his face, looking periodically at the audience. Man, did God use that. You should go online and read what happened. Wow. The Spirit fell on that place. But... A lot of people have been moved emotionally, walked the aisle, prayed the prayer to receive Jesus, but really they, they didn't mean it in their heart. How do I know? Because there was no evidence of change. Nothing changed. They went on living the same old life. Yet in their mind, 
because they prayed that prayer, they're saved. Once again, Jesus said that we would know the true from the false by their fruit. That's something that James and others echoed. Turn to James 2. Of course, you know this. And by the way, Martin Luther rejected the book of James as being non-canonical. He didn't believe it was inspired. Because you have to understand his uh, journey. How he started off as a, as a Catholic, trying to work his way into heaven. Until finally God got a hold of him. And by reading the scriptures, God began to pound into his head one day. The just shall live by faith. He said this voice kept getting louder. The just shall live by faith until it was booming in his head. And he realized, wait a minute. You're not, we're not saved by our works. We're saved by faith. So when he came to James' epistle, well, we'll read it. Let's pick it up, verse, James 2, verse 14. What, he believed James was preaching salvation by works. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Oh, that's terrible, see? He's preaching faith plus works. Actually, the Greek is, can that kind of faith save him? Um, verse 17. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. James is saying he's not teaching salvation plus works, excuse me, faith plus works equals salvation. He's teaching a faith that works. He's saying the same thing Jesus said in a different way. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. The works that James is talking about is the fruit. But the idea is that, and he goes on to talk about Abraham. Abraham believed God, but he offered his son Isaac, which God stopped him, didn't let him go through that, but he was ready to act on his faith. And that James says, look, you say you have faith, but don't have anything to back it up. There's no change. There's no fruit. That kind of faith can't save you. It's empty. It's head knowledge. It's not saving faith. That's all he's saying. Guys, look at Once again, just because you raised your hand, walked down the aisle, prayed a prayer, signed a card. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, the evangelists do that because they want to get information to you. You just accepted Christ. We want to give you a Bible. We want to give you a little discipleship course. We want to direct you to a good, solid church that you can start attending. That's all good stuff. You should have somebody fill out a card. Don't just dump them in the world and say, you know, good luck. <laughs> you know. So I don't have a problem with that. But I've told you this story. Let me tell it again because some of you haven't heard. Years ago when Luis Palau was coming out to the area, good guy. He's with the Lord now. Good guy, great evangelist from Argentina. And, um, and so uh, his team came out a year in advance and started training people. And if the pastors, they wanted us to go down when he gave the altar call. And he preached, I don't know, three or four times in the Chicagoland area. But we were trained uh, how to talk to people. And, uh, and so that, were, that had come down to receive Christ. And so at that time, I was really into this whole idea that, look, you know, I don't want to foster, I don't want to encourage somebody that 
has not got saving faith, doesn't doesn't really know what they're doing to quick pray a quick prayer. Hey, you're saved. God bless you. So when he gave the altar call, I forgot where it was. Um, I went down with other pastors down waiting on the floor there, and a young woman came, and I walked up to her, and I said to her, I said, um, "Do you uh, understand what you're doing?" Uh, yeah. Well, what are you doing? Well, I, I want to receive Jesus. Okay, great. Do you, do you understand what that means? She just stared at me. I said, you're, you're, you're giving up control of your life to him. He's going to be your master now. He's going to, he loves you and he's going to lead your life. But right now, starting tonight, you're, you are giving up your autonomy. You're no longer going to be the Lord of your own life. Now, he's going to be the Lord. Are you ready to make that kind of a decision? And she stared at me for what seemed like a long time. And then she said, no, I'm not ready to do that. And I said, well, thank you for your honesty. And I prayed for her that God would bring her to a place where she, was, she would receive Jesus with the right heart, understand what she was doing. Didn't Jesus say, count the cost before you follow me? I, I've shared that story throughout the years and I had a family leave the church because they thought I was teaching salvation by works. But like James, I'm not teaching salvation by works. I'm teaching a salvation that works. And it starts with understanding what you're doing. I mean, Jesus could have said to the rich young ruler, good master, what do I, what do, I do to inherit eternal life? He was rich, young. Every pastor wants a guy like that in his church. Zealous, Right? I mean, if I had been the guy, if, if he had come to me, I probably, of course, I know better now, but in my younger days as a pastor, pastor, I, I want to accept Christ. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, you know, I run a synagogue and, and so I'm, I'm a moral guy. And by the way, I'm wealthy. Let's pray right now. <laughs> Jesus didn't do that. He probed him. To find out what's really going on. He knew what was really going on. I have to probe. I can't see the heart like Jesus. But it's interesting how Jesus probed him. The Lord didn't say, well, come on, let's get on our knees right now. I'll, I'll pray to you right now to receive me. Jesus is not looking for numbers. He's looking for hearts. And we don't do anybody any favors to look at potential converts as notches on our holster and rush them through the process so I can say, hey, I led somebody to Christ today. Did you? What you did was you probably delivered a stillborn child. Because God was working, but they weren't ready to be birthed yet, and you rushed it through the process. That's a serious thing to think about. Let God do his work. And because we can't see into the heart, ask questions. Do you understand what it means to be a Christian? I mean, you know, walk them through it. And if they say, look, pastor, or you know, whoever it is, I understand everything you're saying, and I'm ready. I accept all of that. I want him to be my master, my Lord. I want to give him control. Let's pray. Let's pray. But remember this. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you are disqualified, 
I looked that up in the Greek today. The word means a phony, a counterfeit. There's a lot of folks, for whatever reason, their faith is not genuine, is not at a place. Uh, they, they, they pray to prayer, but they haven't really entered into salvation because the heart, their heart wasn't right, wasn't ready. And maybe they had some kind of ulterior, I want joy, I'm, I'm sad, I'm lonely, I heard Jesus can make me happy, that's what I need, I want Jesus, I want to be happy. Well, see, that's not really a, we all want to be happy, but that's not a reason for accepting Christ, because he's going to make me happy, or prosperous, like some preachers are telling people. It's all about taking up your cross, dying to self, and following him, right? Well, we are out of time. Next week... We'll look quickly because honestly, these are pretty obvious, but these are the qualities of true saving faith. Now, we just looked at what doesn't constitute true saving faith. You say none of it? Well, once you have it, you're going to walk in those that first list. But if you walk in that first list, doesn't mean you'll have saving faith. So next week, God willing, we will look at the qualities of true saving faith. All right, Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, how much you love us. And Lord, thank you that you've opened our eyes to your truth. We know you now. But that doesn't mean our walk is over. doesn't mean that that is it now. That's just the beginning of our journey with you. But Lord, we ask you to keep blessing these studies. And next week as we look at the qualities of true saving faith, some of these, maybe we didn't think about. Um, but we want to know it. We want to know this subject so we can share it with people who are interested. What's involved in really believing in you? So we, by your grace, we'll look at this next time. Bless these studies in Romans. Continue to. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.